Good morning. Buenos días. I'm going to read the word of God and can you step? I'm going to read in Spanish, okay? Entonces vino uno y le dijo, Maestro bueno, ¿qué bien haré para tener la vida eterna? Él le dijo, ¿por qué me llamas bueno? Ninguno hay bueno sino uno, Dios. Mas si quieres entrar en la vida, guarda los mandamientos. Le dijo, ¿cuáles? Y Jesús dijo, no matarás, no adulterarás, no hurtarás, no dirás falso testimonio, honra a tu padre y a tu madre y amarás a tu prójimo como a ti mismo. El joven le dijo, todo esto he guardado desde mi juventud, ¿qué más me falta? Jesús le dijo, si quieres ser perfecto, anda, vende lo que tienes y dalo a los pobres y tendrás tesoro en el cielo y ven y sígueme. Oyendo, esta, oyendo el joven estas palabras se fue triste porque tenía muchas posesiones entonces Jesús dijo a sus discípulos de cierto os digo que difícilmente entrará un rico en el reino de los cielos otra vez os digo que es más fácil pasar un camello por el ojo de una aguja que entrar un rico en el reino de Dios sus discípulos oyendo esto se asombraron en gran manera diciendo ¿Quién pues podrá ser salvo? Y mirándolos Jesús les dijo para los hombres esto es imposible mas para Dios todo es posible. Entonces respondiendo Pedro le dijo he aquí nosotros hemos dejado todo y, y te hemos seguido y qué pues tendremos y Jesús le dijo, de cierto os digo que en la regeneración, cuando el Hijo del Hombre se siente en el trono de su gloria, vosotros que me habéis seguido también os sentaréis sobre doce tronos para juzgar a las doce tribus de Israel y cualquiera que haya dejado casas o hermanos o hermanas o padres o madres o mujer o hijos o tierras por mi nombre recibirá cien veces más y heredará la vida eterna pero muchos primeros serán postreros y postreros serán primero thank you elder maria for reading the passage with us good morning everybody we find ourselves on this sunday of lent the lectionary passage for this week as just read to us talks about this encounter this really unique encounter there's nothing quite like this between Jesus and, I don't think this term is actually in the text, and, and Matthew, Mark, or Luke's account, but he's often called the rich young ruler. And uh, this is one of those passages, I mean, I, I hope we always take seriously showing up fully to a passage when we're reading and interacting with it, but this is one of those passages, one of those encounters where if you're showing up fully with it, if you're really entering into it, I don't know how it doesn't evoke a whole bunch of feelings. Um, this is a very intense encounter, a very intense conversation, right? A very intense invitation, ultimately. Um, but, uh, you know, it should, I, would, I think it should spur some feelings, some thoughts, some reactions, some kind of questions that we have. Um, I'm going to invite you to kind of check in how you feel on it. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop at two different points in my own journey in terms of how uh, this shaped in me and how I was responding to it. Uh, 
this this passage looms so large for my upbringing. So I grew up in church. Not all of you did, but a lot of you did. I don't think you can grow up in church without having heard this passage a whole bunch, right? <laughs> uh, uh, this is going to come up often. Every preacher, every church can have their own bent on it. Some <laughs> probably more right on, some not. But it's just one of those. It's got a lot of stuff with it. So you're not going to grow up around church without coming in contact with this one. And I actually, I'm not sure there's a text in the entire New Testament that was scarier to me than this one growing up. Uh, in fact, I was just had this memory come back when I was reflecting on this passage. I was remembering early high school, maybe freshman, sophomore year, um, talking with really my one other friend that kind of had grown up in church with me there. And we played this kind of dumb but funny game of if you had a magic wand or a magic eraser and you could eliminate one passage from the Bible, what would it be? Right? It's kind of a fun game to play God and say, I'm take this one back, you know, and, and just swap it out. And so uh, we play this game. If you, could, if you could remove one passage from Scripture, um, what would it be? And so it was like completely unsurprising what my friend picked. He was such a ladies' man. So you can probably guess which kind of passages he wanted removed <laughs> from Scripture. Anything that had to do with a sexual ethic within marriage, he wanted that gone and, you know, freedom around that to do whatever he'd want to do. But I, I remember when I was actually thinking of this question, this is the passage I came to. I said, if I got to remove one um, I would remove this passage from Matthew, Mark, and Luke around this rich young ruler. Um, for a couple of reasons, I mean, there, there's the more, there, there's the obvious thing in this. There's this kind of conversation around money, but like that real scary thing where Jesus says it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than enter into the kingdom. And I had no money at all. Not our family didn't have any money, but I hoped I would have money at some point. And it was pretty scary to think about having money and then kind of having to sit in the gravity of this passage. But actually, it was even for, it went even deeper than that, and I've shared this along the way, but this is very, very much was part of my formation, understanding God, things I had to be reformed in. Um, I just was scared of God in general. I was scared of God in general. Um, I lived with this kind of chronic fear as a younger person that I was going to go to hell no matter what I did. Um, I was um, very worried about that, very oriented around trying to figure out how to not go to hell. I knew the right answer was to like pray and accept through faith the grace of God. But grace always felt like this elusive thing to me. Like, right, so the Christian message is that grace is that unmerited favor. You're forgiven by God just because of God's goodness, not because of anything you do. That is true. I believe with all my being. Um, but I struggled to believe that. And then when I would come to passages like this, it would actually uh, uh, elevate these fears I had that actually grace isn't as real as Christian preachers say it is, right? Um, when, when Jesus says, oh my God, everything about that verse um, in the response to the rich rangular, if you want um, uh, when, when the rich young ruler says that uh, 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 he wants to you know, n- hear from Jesus what to do. Verse 21, Jesus answers, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Man, if there's one verse in the New Testament that felt like the antithesis of grace, it felt like this verse. Right? It does not sound to me, in first blush reading that, that what Jesus says is, well, by grace you are saved, and therefore live from that place in union with me. It sounds like what Jesus says is, go be perfect. Go be perfect. Do everything I've asked you to do. Even when you do everything I've asked you to do, you're probably still not going to be perfect. And then, then you can come follow me. Right? That, if there's one verse in a nutshell that was everything I feared about the possibility of what Christianity meant, it was that verse right there. Um, that Daniel, you should try to be perfect. You can't be perfect. You can't really follow God or be accepted by God. Hell is probably in your future no matter what you do. I mean, that, that, that's, that's like what I heard. So I mean, it went real, real deep for me, um, the fear that comes from this passage. So 
I mentioned that because I don't know, maybe as you all locate yourself, maybe some of you feel a little scared when you read that or maybe it feels a little bit confrontational or maybe it feels like just too high of a bar. Um, but that, I, I would say up until my mid-20s, when I thought about it, and I tried not to think about it too much, <laughs> but when I would think about this passage, um, it would evoke fear in me. All right, I would put that kind of on one side. So that this is to me kind of the grace of God in action. The same passage that was scarier to me than any other words from Jesus became one of the most life-giving passages to me. One of the, and to this day I would still say now, when I think of the totality of what it means to be a Christian, I think I might come to this, but this would be in the top for certainly for myself where I would come to. Um, and that's where I want us to kind of look at this in a new way a little bit, I hope a little bit in a new way, see some deeper dimension to it. Just to locate myself one more time, because this is a big part, it's gonna sound like I'm going on a detour, but this is actually a pretty big part of the story. So in my 20s, that's when I really came back to faith or came to faith in a way that was real and personal and vibrant for me that's maintained that way ever since then. Started, you know, left the marketplace, was working full-time in a church. The part I want to get to, so an, an interesting part of my story. So once I, once at 22, once I really came to faith in a very real kind of way, there was, re, there was a sincere never turning back for me. I mean, it's not like I was without errors or anything, of course, but I mean, I've had a fire from God, for God, and kingdom ever since 22. That's been pretty true of me ever since then. In my mid-20s, I started hitting this point in my own faith journey that it felt like something big was missing. I felt like I was giving myself fully to God. I was responding to God the best I knew how, but it felt like something big was still missing. And I didn't even have this language yet, but just for the sake of making the story short, um, the call and commitment to justice is what I would say, is what I was starting to stumble onto. That the faith tradition I was part of, kind of this I didn't have any of these terms, but this white conservative Christian evangelical tradition that I was part of, there were some parts about talking about the Bible and God that felt so right on and so life-giving to me, but this notion of joining God in justice work, in, you know, justice is a big word, but if we stick kind of with this passage, justice always includes economic equality, right? Justice is always concerned with the fact that God has created resources for all people, but because of sin and depravity, there's always some of those who are in power who have too much stuff and those who are representing the margins that don't have enough stuff. And so this is always a big part of how justice plays out from the beginning of the, of the Bible until the end. And so I started feeling, I mean, I'm embarrassed that it took me to my 20s to even understand what justice was at any level to think of that biblically. But here's, here's what I'm wondering. This, it's led to a faith disorientation, almost crisis for me. As I started, and I was so naive, so, but as I started stumbling deeper and deeper into trying to understand justice, this kind of interesting phenomenon happened at the larger level for me in the spaces I was in. The more I talked about for myself, trying to understand Jesus' call towards justice, the more I seemed to make all of my Christian contemporaries nervous. Um, uh, it unnerved them in a way that was super peculiar to me and like super disorienting to me. And they started using words that had never been said of me before. And this is, I, it was a conservative tradition, so this word was seen as a bad thing when it was used. But in this conservative space, I started being called a liberal theologian, which I didn't even know what that meant. Um, but I started being called liberal, which I guess just meant they saw themselves as the right and liberals are to the left. And so I started being called liberal. I started being called political, which was interesting. Um, what does seeking justice have anything to do? I mean, I, I get now understand that there's political realities to how you think about enacting justice, but justice should be true for everybody, just maybe different views of how to get there. Um, and then another term, I had no idea why it was being used to me. They started saying I was being informed by the social gospel, which meant, you know, that it was thinking more about, yeah, I don't know, I'm not going to try to, I'm going to stop by a few big terms that it's not fair because it's, it's, I'm not going to go all the way in them. 
the reason I'm bringing that up is it created this huge disorientation for me because for me, there was a purity to this of that it was no more complicated the fact that I love Jesus and I'm trying to give my life fully to the work of Jesus and that seems to demand justice. It seems to demand a way of living in the world that is different than what I was doing, a, a, a reckoning with my resources, with my opportunities, with my access. So I was wrestling with this. A mentor said, you know, I, I, I knew it from the spirit more than I knew it from the scripture because I had learned... <laughs> I, uh, there was a Ray Bakke quote that became very formative for me back then. Ray Bakke used to say, if you read the Bible through a middle-class lens, you'll always get a middle-class gospel. <laughs> uh, um, and so I, I didn't actually even understand yet that the Bible pointed towards justice. Now it's like you can't look anywhere and not see it. But so a, a mentorish person just said to me, just reread the gospels. If you're looking for a theology of justice, just reread the gospels and try to reread them fully, <laughs> not in kind of a socially conditioned way. So I started reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I got to this passage, just sequentially going through. It wasn't actually the Matthew one. It was either, um, I think it was Mark's version. Um, it was, it was Mark's version. So I was reading through the Gospel of Mark, got to the story. And I remember getting the story and going, oh, there's my, uh, going back to 14-year-old Daniel that wishes he had the magic eraser that could remove this story, right? So I remember having that kind of feeling in the pit of my stomach, oh, oh the rich young ruler, I hate this, I hate this story, but it's what's next, let me read it. But when I got there, because the space I was in now, because the work I was doing, I saw this completely differently. Um, it no longer sounded scary to me. Uh, in fact, I realized this is a passage not of confrontation, though depending on what your starting point is, it can be heard as a confrontation. This is a, this is a passage all about freedom and liberation. It's a passage about freedom and liberation and it helped orient me in a way that I thank God for because uh, this kind of recalibrated me moving forward. So let's go back to the story. If you don't mind, Sergio, keep bringing up the passage again. So let's let's... Let's, let, let's look at some of what makes, really, there's not an encounter like this um, uh, anywhere else in the Gospel account. So there's something really significant and special about this. So here, here's, here's a couple things I would draw out about the story that I think um, uh, really help add some color and dimension to this and ultimately kind of points us towards the liberation and freedom that Jesus is offering. So first thing, when I came back to this passage in a new kind of a way, I actually... I don't know if tenders are word, but I felt tender towards this guy in a way I hadn't before. Um, so this young man that comes to Jesus asking, what do I need to do? What, what am I missing? What else is there? Um, there's nothing about this encounter that makes it sound that the man is antagonistic. Here's what I said. You get a lot of interaction in the New Testament with Pharisees in particular where they bait Jesus, right? They'll say, what's the greatest commandment? Or how would you solve this particular theological issue? Or how, how would you address this? And they're like never really sincere in what they're asking. Everything is kind of a setup. It's trying to draw him out. There's nothing about this encounter that feels like a setup. There's nothing in, about this that feels that the man is insincere when he comes to Jesus. And I remember the Mark version of this. Matthew doesn't have this, but in the Mark version of this, not only is this man come seeking Jesus, seeing him as a, a minimum rabbi, perhaps even the son of God, but in the Mark account, when the man sees Jesus, he falls on his knees in a prostrate position, which says a lot about where the man is coming from. He is not coming trying to defend himself. He is not coming trying to antagonize Jesus. He's not coming looking for a loophole. I really don't think that's true. I think before this encounter starts, I think if you would have asked this man, what is your motivation and purpose here? He would have thought it was 100% pure, 100% God-oriented, that he already loves God. He already orients himself around being obedient to the commandments of God and hungers for something even more. That's his, that's his motivation for coming to Jesus. 
But once he actually comes to Jesus and they have this conversation and Jesus says, follow the commandments and gives these variety of different commandments finishing with love your neighbor as yourself, right? The way that the conversation goes takes the man to a point where uh, there's kind of an exposing that happens, right? That this man thought he was all in in terms of how he thought about faith, how he thought about commitment to God. But when he has this conversation with Jesus, it's clear that he's not ready actually to be all in. There's something about the nature of this conversation that exposes something about this man. And I just want to pause here for a moment because this won't be all of your story, but for me, this was so illuminating because I thought, as I'm trying to figure out what's missing in my life, I thought this restraining ruler, his experience matches most of the Christians I'm around. Most of the Christians I'm around are sincere. So I'm not even talking about people outside of faith. I'm talking about people who profess to follow Jesus, who, who, who are, you know, who have given their lives to God. Most of the Christians I know would say they're all in kinds of Christians. They would say that they obey the commands, that they take following Jesus very seriously. And yet, in this new dimension where I'm feeling God drawing me deeper into justice, there's something about that God's drawing me into that's making all of them really jumpy. And there felt something really similar about this man in a lot of the Christian experience I was experiencing myself. And this isn't to judge them as much as just try to like orient myself. So then I started to ask, what is it, what is it about this conversation that's so disorienting for this man? Because right, I actually think that was his motivation. I still believe this. I believe he wanted even more of God. I believe that was what he wanted. And yet when Jesus invites him, he can't do it, right? He walks away sad. So what was it that got exposed? And this is another one of those points where I'm going to like name a couple things that are each worth their own whole conversation, but that's not what I'm trying to do today. I'm just naming them um, at a high level. But the first thing that was reorienting about this for me is, is one of the things that I think this man was limited by is that he had a very privatized, individualized way of thinking of faith. Let me say it like that. He had a very privatized, individualized way of thinking of faith, which is not wrong in and of itself. <laughs> to have a big view of faith never is less than what it means for me in my own personal conduct, but it's also always bigger than that, right? So there's something interesting. I, re- I started to realize that this, this, when Jesus invites him to be perfect, we're going to come back to that term, be perfect, to sell his possessions, to give to the poor, to join Jesus, Jesus was exposing some things first, um, it's interesting when Jesus lists out all the commandments, the way he says it, the, the first ones are all much more private and your own, like things you can do without um, having to kind of think of communal justice or anything like that. Jesus says, you shall not murder, all right, straightforward. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall honor your mother and father. And then throws out the big one at the end and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Now, that one doesn't quite feel like all the rest of them, right? The other ones are kind of checkboxes almost. You could say, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm trying to honor my father and mother. But love your neighbor is this huge sweeping command, right? It's, it's the whole Shema. That's what the Hebrews called the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the whole of, of, of the commandments, right? So Jesus says, just do all these things. So what Jesus is doing is taking kind of the man to, this man to the limits. What Jesus is saying is like, okay, you say that, you love God and love neighbor, right? That you're saying that's what you are. You're saying that's what you're oriented towards. So like, I'm opening this door to you. Like, let's go all the way. Let's go all the way. Like, let's especially center that love your neighbor part and like, come with me. Like, relinquish everything you have. Put it into the pile of what we're going to do towards economic justice. And like, let's go. Like, you say this is what you're oriented around. Love God, love neighbor. Um, and it's there's something about stepping out beyond just the personal, private kind of expression of faith and moving towards a grander vision of Christianity that includes that, 
but is broader of something else. Something about that exposes the man, unsettles the man, takes him past the limits of what he can do right there. You see, you see what I'm saying, right? The second thing, and this is probably the more obvious one, and this is always important, but the second thing that Jesus shows is that for this man, though he thought of himself as fully surrendered to God, that ultimately his allegiance to wealth was greater than his allegiance to God. Right? And this is, of course, an enormously spiritually formative issue for all of us, depending on the level of access we have to things that would be considered wealth in any given time. But this, this is a huge biblical theme that I'm not going to hardly get into at all today because that's worthy of being its own conversation to do this well. But the bottom line, Jesus is saying, if it comes down to it, like in allegiance is a word I'm kind of using here because it's, 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 it's about like which one do you look to? Right? Which one do you look to for guidance, for meaning, for security, for control? And what we see for this young man is that his relationship with money was such that he really did want to follow God, but if it was put the full weight of your trust and your surrender unto God or to money, at that point in his journey, it was too much to ask to fully trust Jesus. All right, now again, a lot that could be said about both of those, about the nature of moving from a private individual faith to one that's broader, one that's about moving your allegiance from money to God. What I, I want to stick with this passage where, where I think there's some things in here that a lot of us don't see and this is kind of where I want to start moving towards kind of the deeper meaning of this and the application. I told you that what God used this passage to me to do is, is to see that this is not primarily a challenge or a confrontation. It can be heard at that depending on how tied you are to your stuff. But it's there are a few places where there's a more powerful and holistic invitation to life in God than this one. And in, it's on the front and the back of what Jesus says. And both, even though we can like look straight at it, I think we probably miss both of them. So I want us to like really focus in on the beginning and the end of the invitation. It's a one-verse invitation that Jesus says, verse 21. And if you don't mind bringing that up, Sergio, um, 21 verse specifically. I want us to dwell a little bit on what Jesus invites the man, this rich young man to, but how that's an invitation for all of us and how, how much is wrapped up in this. So Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, that's how this is translated in English, go, sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. All right, beginning of this and the end of this, are each they're kind of doing the same thing, but in a very different way. Um, so let's start with, uh, I never want you to feel like when you're reading it in English, you can't like understand the full meaning um, but there is just a reality that there are times where the way something is said in the original language just doesn't come across quite right. And so, I don't know, I'd be curious for Spanish speakers how that word perfect is translated in Spanish. In English, it says, if you want to be perfect, which actually, okay, so when we think of perfect, we're not thinking of what this passage is saying. Like, if you're thinking of perfect, you're probably thinking the same thing I have. Like, if you get a test in school and there's 10 answers on it, there's only one score that could be perfect, right? That's 10 out of 10, right? That's the only way you get perfect if you're taking a test, right? So nine out of 10 might be an A, but it's not perfect, so you fall short, right? Like, that's the kind of thing we think of with perfect, right? Well, that, that, that does not get to, let, let's, do, let's, do, let's do a little Greek word study, can we? Uh, but this has been very transformative for me. So go to the next slide, if you would. I want us to look at this Greek word that's used for what in English is called, if you want to be perfect. So if you can flip, is, is, is it in there, the... Yes, here it is. Okay, so go ahead, go to the next. So there, there is Jesus, if you want to be perfect. So next slide, if you would, Sergio. All right, what that word English perfect is being translated is the Greek word teleos. Will you repeat that with me? Teleos. 
All right, here's how Strong's definition would define teleos. Brought to, completeness, brought to completeness where there is nothing needed anymore. Now, you don't need to flip to this, Sergio, but if you've got your Bible open, uh, I want you to look at verse 28 because I actually, I actually think verse 28 is a pretty good way of getting at what Jesus is getting at with this word teleos. In verse 28, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the man sits on his glorious throne, that's him. Uh, I, want you to, I want you to keep that phrase, the renewal of all things, in the back of your mind while we explore this word, teleos. Teleos is this beautiful theological word. I'm going to show you some other places where other biblical authors use this. But to give you a sense of this word, it is a huge sweeping word that is pointing to the renewing of all things in the story of God. All right, the teleos, when it talks about this definition of being brought to completeness where there's not need anymore, it's talking about the, like the grand story as told by God where we're living in, these, in this kind of sinful, broken, incomplete world. We often are experiencing fragmented realities, but that the invitation of God is that God is making all things new and is inviting us into that, first to become new in God and whole and complete, but also to join in God making all things new. It is this beautiful word. It's a huge sweeping word of God making all things new, all things right. Right? This word teleos, used all the time in the New Testament, every biblical writer uses it regularly to talk about the grand story, the grand narrative of God making all things new. So let me give you one example from a number of different writers. Let's start with John, the Apostle John, and how uh, he uses teleos a lot. But let's look at one of the famous ones that gives you kind of a sense of the beauty of this word. So next slide, if you would. In 1 John chapter 4, a verse I love so much and we come back to it often where there's no fear in love. But uh, let's look at the word teleos in it. So the Apostle John says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear is to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. But he builds it around this word teleos. What John is saying is when you experience the love of God as evidenced in this grand story, this grand story of God making all things new, of God making all things right. When you get a sense of that story, there's no room for fear anymore because you so trust the one who, our story in and of itself, all of humankind, all of creation's story begins in God, ends with God, and we're swept up in the story of a God who's making all things new, all things right, all things complete. When John's saying, when you get a sense of the love that characterizes this grand story, there's no room for fear anymore. I see he uses it twice and that uses it all the time. For those of you who like doing word studies, you can find how often this word is used. Uh, let's do one from James, brother of John, uh, brother of Jesus, of how he talked about um, teleos, about the finishing work of God. Um, James this is a real famous passage when James is talking about um, trusting God even when in the midst of hardships. And James says, let patience finish. Notice how in English, same word, but it's gonna be translated two different ways. Let, pa- let patience teleos bring into this completion its work so that you may be made whole, mature, teleos, and complete, not lacking anything. All right, so James also really leaning into this reality that there's this big story, which you start to see how perfect doesn't feel quite right, right? Uh, it's maybe perfected, uh, but, but this is actually what's getting it by perfect. It's not your behavior being perfect. It's about you being made whole, right, fashioned, into all that you were created to be within the context of this grand story. Let's do another one. Um, let's listen to how, uh, I think Paul's next, right? Yeah, another famous verse, but think of it through the lens of Teleos here. So in Romans 12, the Apostle Paul said, do not conform to the pattern of this world, 
be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and prove what God's will is, God's good, pleasing, and teleos will, right? This isn't about God saying, you need to become perfect. In fact, when teleos is used, it's always talking about God, not you. This is about us being caught up in a story, not about behaviorally being perfect. Apostle Paul says, here's why transformation is so important, right? If you get caught up in the ways of this world, you will not be in tune with, you will not be aligned with, you will not be swept up by the big story of God's work of God making all things new, of God making all things whole. One more. We're in Lent right now. We are moving towards Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Let's think about the importance of this word teleos. This is the, the already done version of teleos. Very similar, but same idea. Let's do one more verse where um, we'll hear this one a lot on Good Friday, and I hope you'll remember this teleos idea. So in John's account, at the very final moments of Jesus's in the flesh before he's going to die, when he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. Teleos, the past version of this. Jesus is, saying, Jesus is saying something profound that what's physically happening in that moment on the cross is part of this grand story of like, now in the future, it is finished. The, all the work that of God renewing all things has come to its climactic moment here on the cross, initiating, moving forward in the next way, all that God is doing in the renewing of all things. That's a crazy word, isn't it? That's an important word, isn't it? Now, if you don't mind flipping all the way back, Sergio, to the passage again, if you'd come back to the, to the verse where Jesus says that to this rich young ruler, in verse 21, Jesus and this rich young ruler are having this conversation. So Jesus says to him, if you want to be perfect, now you can Boy, you can see this is one where, if depending on what you think Jesus is saying, it changes the whole way you understand Christianity, really, right? If what Jesus is saying is get your behaviors aligned so that every single thing you're supposed to do is accounted for, and then you can come follow me, I mean, that's that's one way to think of Christianity, and not a good way. It'll it'll lead you to despair um, without question and fear without question. If what Jesus is saying is if you want to be perfected, if you want to be swept up in the story of God who's renewing all things, the phrase Jesus will use again here in a little bit, the phrase that Jesus uses on the cross, it is finished. If you understand that of this being an invitation to the movement of God, the whole rest of it sounds so different after that, doesn't it? Where he's saying, he's inviting him to reflecting on this deep theological idea of the teleos, of the movement of God towards the renewal of all things. Man, we could just stop right there, but I just want to make sure if that's not beautiful enough, it's, it's, I think we miss what happens at the end of that. So Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possession, give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Now that sounds simple and straightforward, and it is at some level. Jesus says, come follow me. These are words that are not unusual to come out of Jesus' mouth. He invites a number of people to come follow me. Except here's what jumped out to me in my 20s when I came back to this passage in a new way. I found myself asking, and then I did some research on this and confirmed. I said, I thought to myself, every time I remember in the New Testament Jesus saying these words, come follow me, I think every time Jesus invites somebody, they say yes. Like, for one, just in the actual lived reality, to have a rabbi say to a young pupil, potential pupil, come follow me, that was life-changing. But then to have a sense of that this is God in the flesh, the Son of God saying, come follow me. So therefore, when, when, when Jesus says to somebody, Hey, fishermen, come follow me. They drop their nets. Their parents support it. They say, go, go with him, right? When Jesus says to a tax collector, Matthew, come follow me, Matthew leaves behind his tax collector business and comes with him. I mean, it was a life-changing invitation. 
It was a life-changing invitation to hear these simple words, those, in English, those three words, come follow me. And what I realized when I came back to that is Jesus invited this man to the same thing that he invited the 12 disciples into, the same thing he invited his inner core into. The, the invitation that was put before this man was un, is unmatched. You, you can't, for the day and age he lived in, there could not have been a higher, deeper, more expansive invitation than what Jesus put before this guy when he said, come follow me. And this man is the only recorded instance, I'm not saying it didn't happen elsewhere, but it's the only recorded instance in the New Testament, it's the only recorded instance where Jesus in the flesh invites somebody to come into his inner circle and follow him, and they don't. Only time somebody doesn't. Which, of course, that's the sadness, that's the hardship of this. But I'm, what I am particularly want to emphasize is that for those who view this primarily through a fear lens or primarily as a confrontation, we're missing the thrust of what this passage is about. It is a profound invitation. It's a profound invitation to liberation. Jesus is saying this kind of private, personalized gospel you've got, this allegiance to money that you have, none of those things lead to true and full life. I am inviting you into the teleos, into the movement of God that is renewing all things. You can come, you can get, you can dive headfirst into this thing and you can come follow me. You can be all the way with me. Profound invitation. Now, of course, that's the sad part of the story. It's kind of like the prodigal son story where it's this overwhelming invitation from the father and the story ends and we're not sure if the older brother ever actually takes him up on it. We don't know what happens with this young guy. I don't think there's ever a single moment like this. It's fully possible that 12 months later, there was a totally different kind of reaction to this young man and he saw it in a different kind of a way. But in these final moments, what I want to draw out here, there, there's, I, I want to bring this to an invitation for us. I do want to say, there's so many things about this passage, but I feel like I do include this one is important. I want to say this with nuance. Um, this passage is important not only for how you respond to the gospel, it's also important for understanding a cycle that we're all going to see happen over and over and over again. That... Um, Here's how I maybe want to say it. I don't want to ever make an artificial distinction between the poor and the wealthy, those who have access to money and resources in a much more abundant way than those who don't. But we do live in a material social world, right? We live in a world that kind of stuff matters. And I think there's something to be said. There's exceptions, but there's something to be said for the fact that where you're at on the wealth spectrum, right? So some are going to be like access to a tons of it. Some are going to be fighting for resources for every meal, right? Generally speaking, those who have less of what the world values have much less trouble seeing the full beauty of this invitation because it doesn't feel nearly as confrontational. Right? When Jesus says, let go of your allegiance to money and come into the big story with me, that doesn't sound as scary on the front end and it sounds pretty amazing on the back end. And for those who do have access to the wealth of this world, we tend to have an inverse relationship with this passage. It tends to sound really scary on the front end and we miss the beauty what's on the back end of it. And in a, I don't know, I just, mm, you'll see it in society broader. I guess I'm just wanting to kind of pastorally say this. We're going to see this happen a lot in River City. I think that's just kind of what I want to say. Um, this, was, this was saddening to me, but also grounding you know, so we're trying to invite everybody. It's not about our church. It's about the invitation of God. We're trying to invite everybody into this story of following Jesus and to being part of the renewal of all things in God. But one of the disheartening things we see here often, but it's not just us. This is happening anywhere Christianity is happening, is that we often see the cyclical pattern of the rich young ruler here. 
where somebody comes into this place saying, I want, I, I'm ready and need something more in my faith. And I think something about this collective communal orientation around denying power and privilege and the things that come with that and following Jesus fully, that's what I want. And then it's not everybody, so thank God there's like some who, who experience God deeply in this. But for many, 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 they kind of see the kind of true cost of that and they walk away. And this is the detail of the story that's so interesting. This guy doesn't walk away mad. It's really interesting to me. The rich young ruler doesn't walk away mad at Jesus. He doesn't say, how dare you? Um, um, he's not antagonistic with Jesus when he leaves. How does he leave? He's sad. Which to me says, at some deep spiritual level, he actually understood what was possible in that moment. He could actually hear the call of Jesus to go to a depth and, and a level of experience that went beyond anything that was happening in his just check the boxes, keep the rules, follow God on my terms kind of a thing. There was an opportunity to experience something so much more and yet the reality was the cost felt too big to do it. And so even though Jesus actually invited him to do exactly what he was hoping to do when he came to Jesus, that's the irony of this encounter. The man asked for more and Jesus opened the door to even more than he could have ever imagined. And yet he walked away sad. And I do think there is a little bit of a cyclical reality to this where those who have access to a lot of prison, I'll put myself in that same, that's exact same boat. Um, we are going to have to contend with the fact that it sounds scarier than it should. And we're going to miss the depth of the invitation because of the scariness of surrendering power, control, privilege. But let's end on the upside of this. The upside of this is that this wasn't really any kind of a confrontation at the end of the day. I don't think this was anything to do with Jesus saying, you're bad because you have this stuff and if you want to be good, you should do this. I don't even think that's at all part of this story. I think it's actually simply an exposing of kind of the limits of where this man's faith had taken him to this point and then an invitation to something so much more. And I, I believe this is the same invitation. I believe this all in my heart. That I believe this is the same invitation that Jesus gives to us be perfected. And I hope now you can hear the fullness of that. that. We're not talking about something behavior, but like let's end with the two things that Jesus says to that young man. Become perfected. Become something new in the teleos story of God. I mean, that's such a big idea. You hardly know how to wrap your head around that. And yet, if you just take that phrase that Jesus says a few verses later, the renewal of all things, this is what Jesus says. Like, yes, there's some behaviors, the ethics that come with that, but that's not primarily what Jesus is inviting us into is to be more well-behaved. Jesus is saying, I'm inviting you into the full story. Man, I just want to invite you to kind of just pause and reflect on that a moment, to, to imagine Jesus sitting across from you and saying, I'm inviting you into the whole story. And to say yes to that is this ongoing, go back through all the passages we did, John talking about the perfecting that happens in the way that love goes deeper and fear leaves, right? James, the way that he talks about joy taking over as you are perfected by the renewal story of God who is changing all things. The Apostle Paul who talks about the perfecting, the fashioning, the newness that happens as you're transformed into seeing and relating to God in a way that's so different than what will happen if you get caught up in the patterns of this world. Coming to the cross where Jesus says, it is finished. It's this, in Hebrews 12, when it says that Jesus is the perfecter of our faith, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's this same word.
Right? When Jesus says it's finished, that doesn't mean our story's finished. It means what he had to do to open our story is finished. And that the perfecter of our faith invites us into this way of life with God that changes us, changes us. And when Jesus says, come follow me, that shouldn't first and foremost be thought of, oh man, it's more rules, even higher level of, of, of stuff I have to do for Jesus. No, that's saying, I am inviting you all the way in. I'm inv- I mean, think of what that was when Jesus invited a disciple to be all the way in. That is what those words, come follow me, invite us into. Yes, it requires full surrender on our part, but man, what a trade. We surrender a little bit that we have to get all of who God is. That's a pretty good trade to get the fullness of who God is. God says, I'm inviting you into this story. I'm inviting you to come follow me, to be with me fully, but your allegiance has to be me, not to protecting your privilege, protecting your wealth, protecting access to things. That cannot be what your orientation is towards. Your orientation has to be towards fully submitting and surrendering yourself to receive my love. Pray with me if you would. God, I've got one of those moments right now of like knowing I'm like touching up against something super, super deep. Um, And there's like a lot of dimensions to this, a lot of important parts. And uh, I I almost, I feel the need to confess even my own I, I look at the way I thought of this when I was 15 and then 25 and then 45. It's, it, it continues to go deeper, and I'm sure 10 more years from now, I'm going to realize there's still some things I was missing in this. So I pray my own human frailties don't get in the way of people hearing what you need, what you want them to hear. With that being said, God, now I ask, I ask every person in here to try to hear this encounter for what it was and to hear your invitation to them through this. That more than a teaching on money, more than a emphasis on obedience to particular commands, that the, the much bigger, the much more sweeping invitation is wrapped up in this beautiful word, us that you are inviting us into the story of God that includes our own story, but is also so much bigger than our own story where you invite us into the renewal of all things, which includes us being renewed, but also is a bigger story that's the renewal of all things. I hope that we could see differently. It's just such a small vision of Christianity to say this is just one more religious version of the rules we need to keep. That just is such a small view. I think that's the small view this guy had when he came to you wondering if there's even more rules he's supposed to be doing and you said no no that's not what I'm inviting you into I'm inviting you into this sweeping story that's begun and culminated in and through me God just I feel like words escape me in putting my own language to what you're inviting us to but I pray that by your spirit you'd shake us in the best of ways you would remove obstacles I almost have this I almost have this image right now in the moment of like like vines that like grow around us and start to constrict us that that constrict our air passageways where we can't breathe can't see as clearly as we need to and there are these moments where you just rip all that off and invite us to see clearly fully holy who you are but what you're inviting us into and we're invited Yes, we're saved, we're forgiven. Those things are unbelievable. We're made new. But you're inviting us into this 
full sweeping story of the renewal of all things. I do suspect that as we sit in that and reflect on that, that some of us can gain a consciousness, an awareness of some of the things, some of the reasons why that feels scary. I know there is an important place for confession and repentance. and So maybe even in this moment, some of us would say, God, I'm not even sure I can get free of this, but here's, here's the thing that makes that sound so scary for me. Here's the thing that threatens to leave me walking away sad rather than joyfully saying yes to you. just want to give a moment for reflection on that. If there's kind of an honest conversation between you and God, even if you can't, even if you can't respond yes fully to him yet, to even just acknowledge what the thing is that makes it feel so scary. And then finally, God, as we finish our prayer time together and get ready to respond through song, we reflect on those simple and yet profound three words. Come. Come, follow me. The way that that represents you opening the door to everything, to the fullness of who you are. We're sitting in such big ideas and yet it kind of all comes down to one word. We hear you say, come. And we decide whether to say yes or no to that. So may just that word May that word just sit in the consciousness of our hearts and minds and spirit as we finish our time together. Just a simple invitation from you. Come. Come. I realize there is a first time that we hear that and respond to that, and I pray that some would do that. But that's, that's, that's an invitation you give over and over again to your beloved ones. Come. Come with me into the story of God, into the renewal of all things. Following on the footsteps of the perfecter of our faith, the one who makes us whole and complete. Hmm. Thinking about how next Sunday will be baptism where we celebrate some young people, some older people who are saying, yes, I have said that and I'm saying it with everything in me. I say, yes, I want to come on that journey with the resurrected Lord. As we finish up our time here, God, continue to speak to us, stir us. Reinforce the commitments of those who can say with everything in them, yes, I want to come into that story. Help remove the constricting factors for those who that's where they feel that they're at. Forgive those of us who are aware of the things that get in our way. May all of us be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can see this perfecting work of God who joins us in, invites us into the grand story of God. Amen. Amen. If you don't, can, are you able, if you can stand as we get ready to dismiss, thank you. 
worship team for just grounding us in that reminder of Jehovah Jireh, that is ultimately the one who sustains and provides it's all that we need. Mm. Well, before we give these final words of benediction, um, so glad to have Deb Debbie and Ben here, who are such active parts of the church while they were in Chicago and are now in Ecuador doing important work. And they've got a nonprofit, speaking of kind of doing justice for the poor, they're doing a wonderful work in Ecuador. So we think it's great. They've got a table out here um, where they're going to be um, showcasing what they're doing and have some materials available. So we really would love it for those of you in person if you can go visit them right now. So make sure you two beat everybody out so that uh, <laughs> um, they can talk to you at the table. So um, how about we do a one word benediction today? How about we listen to the words of Jesus, the word of Jesus, and reflect on this and try to remember all the dimension that's in this word when Jesus invites us to one word, come. Let us hear the depths of that. Come into the story of God. Come into the renewal of all things. Come into this larger cosmic story of love. Come follow me. Come. May all God's people say, Amen. Amen.